Today on In the House, we sit down with Matt Ficus of Matt Ficus Architecture in Austin, Texas. We look back on Matt's formative years and find out what drew him to the field of architecture. We talk about the significance of nature and the differences between modernism and classical architecture, and we get a crash course on sustainability and design. We also talk about what makes the team at MF Architecture stand out above the rest. We hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Welcome to In the House. Uh, today we have a very special guest with us today. We have Mr. Matt Ficus of Matt Ficus Architecture. Matt has dozens of accolades, including being featured on Architectural Record, Design, uh, Art Daily, Dwell, The Wall Street Journal, and many others. Uh, his buildings have been on AIA home tours and other modern house tours. Uh, Matt is on the board of directors for the Harvard Alumni Club. He is an assistant professor at UT and was named a fellow at the Center of Sustainable Development. And a few things that we are proud to mention out of his extensive career are uh, being having the award, um, the 2023 Filtered Frame Doc um, got the Award of Merit from the American Institute of Architects. Uh, he's a winner of the Engineering, Architecture, and Design category at the 17th Austin Under 40 Award in 2015, and he's a winner of uh, AIA Austin's Emerging Professional Achievements Honor in 2017. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, uh, we're just going to jump right into it. So, I kind of want to get your background um, I think I think my goal is to really understand where your where your passion comes from. So I, I kind of want to let you have the floor, and, and I really want to kind of ask you about your background, where you grew up, you know, where you went to school, and just kind of give us your history. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting path uh, in terms of the passion for design and architecture. Uh, I am originally from from the Austin area, from Central Texas. And um, the, the passion for design mostly began in an interest in drawing and uh, just creating things. Okay? And, and so I, I wasn't sure where that would lead me early on. I just knew that I really liked to draw and uh, I liked to, to be part of, of, of making things in some way. Um, and, and also I just had an interest in buildings and in cities from a pretty early age. And in addition to that, I, also, I was also quite interested in nature okay? and which has really influenced a lot of the ways that I think about um, space and, and light, sequences and uh, you know, a, a flow and lots of different things. But, um, but I, for, for my undergrad degree, I went to uh, UT Arlington um, to the School of Architecture, and, uh, which is, is a great program of architecture. I learned a lot from uh, many different uh, professors and mentors, and I... Um, and then for grad school, um, went to, to Harvard University to the Graduate School of Design. And both of those really shaped my, my way of thinking about design and architecture and in and, and, and many dimensions and, and helped me to be, you know, um, helped to get kind of a well-rounded way to kind of shape the passion for design and architecture and really try to learn what to, what to really do with that. And so, um, one, so one of the things that, one of the ways I try to maintain that passion now is is going back and, and into 
nature. I have a lot of interest in, in hiking and mountain climbing. In a lot of ways, those, those become these interesting ways to simulate the, the basics of architecture. And so, um, so, so even, so for example, when you, when you go on a multi-day backcountry hiking trip, you have to carry a house on your back, effectively, carrying a tent, uh, which is a very simple form of uh, you know, structural skeleton and a skin. With you have to carry a, yes, you're carrying a house on your back, you're carrying a kitchen, usually has some stove with you, you're carrying a pantry, a fair amount of food, you're carrying a wardrobe in terms of lots of layers of clothes. And that becomes also a bit of a metaphor for architecture in terms of you have your waterproof layer, you have your yeah. insulation layers, you have, you, have, you have these different choices of how you're going to layer your, your clothing. And then, um, and then a similar thing to do with, uh, you know, you also, of course, have, a, have your bed with you and a sleeping bag. Um, but then when it comes to, you know, choosing a campsite, like you're sort of thinking about where's, where's the, what's the best location to set up the site for this relative to the sun and the wind and protection from, you know, creatures and, and uh, other things that are out there. And so it becomes this very immediate way to relate to the most fundamental aspect of architecture, which is shelter. And so that that is is something that uh, really is inspiring for me still, and to force me to sort of try to stop and and get back to the real fundamental primitive components of what what it is we do. And I just recently came back from a, an expedition on Mount Denali in Alaska for wow. three weeks, completely off the grid on a glacier to to reach the summit of Mount Denali with the in this case with the whole team. But all those things came into play in terms of thinking about. Um, in a lot of ways, it's survival, but it's then also about, okay, you do these things just to survive, and then how can you then enhance the experience and how you think about arranging your, whether it's your camp or your setup and the whole journey along the way. So so there, there are a lot of different things that have influenced me along the way, but that's that's one that's been a somewhat of a constant throughout. Well, how does that, how does that influence your work now? Going into nature and like, how does you, um, you know, all these hikes and, and your traveling... How do you think that influences your work now? Well, that's a great question, and the I'll, I'll first take a moment to delineate my work versus the the team's work because sure. I, I think that's one thing about my personal inspiration and my my personal interests, but that begins to fold into and blur into the work of um, the practice and the, uh, the really the team of MFA. And so, yeah, so Sarah Johnson's the other principal architect. Um, I hired Sarah shortly after founding the practice 12 years ago, and she's been been there all along the way and helped shape a lot of this. And and then we've and then we've hired an. A, she's you know, fantastic, by the way. She is <laughs> absolutely a pleasure to work with. She's so, amazing at what she does. So yeah, so Sarah is, is is great to work with, and and then just a very talented team of individuals overall that all have. A really important say, and so I, I want to be clear that my interests play into that, but I also try to leave room for everyone else to, you know, uh, express their talent and be part of, of all of this. And so, um, in terms of uh, how you know the, my how my and our passion for design uh, folds into the actual practice. Is we really believe in modernism and, and uh, with a capital M, meaning that it's about form follows function, as opposed to contemporary. I think often people confuse the terms contemporary and modern. Contemporary means more just a re of the recent. Modernism is a movement that started 100 years ago um, that had to do with 
uh, really prioritizing function to drive form. As opposed to classicism, where if we think of uh, any, any capital building, for example, where you have a completely symmetrical facade and all the windows are the exact same size on the north facade, the south facade, whether or not that makes any sense for the function right. beyond it, the form is more important than function for classicism. And so modernism was a movement that began 100 years ago saying, let's, let's begin with the function. What, what does this need to be? How does it perform? Where do we need larger spaces? Where do we need smaller spaces? And then where do the openings happen as, as a result of that? That's the biggest driver of our work, which also comes back to that's, that, that is the way that nature works. Any, anything that you see in nature, uh, the reason its form exists has to do with the way it actually functions. Right. So a tree, for example... It's it's, it's it's beautiful, of course, but but it's it's based on a functional um, performative logic. The leaves themselves are sort of like photovoltaic panels that you know take solar energy and convert it to you know to actual to nutrients and, and a different form of energy for the tree. Even the structure of the tree itself, the branches have to do with then allowing those leaves to be able to capture light. And then the roots, the root system of the trees have to do with, of course, that the structural support that the foundation of the tree will to allow this vertical cantilever out of the ground to work. And so all, all of nature is, um, is driven by the function. It's not, it's not a form just, to, for, just for the sake of beauty, but it ends up being beautiful because of the fact that it is just what it needs to be. And so that's something that laces through all of our work. And trying to balance that with, of course, you know, any, uh, our, our clients' wants and needs and interests. And so it's not only about how it performs, uh, how a building would perform structurally, but it also how it suits the needs of uh, daily life and long-term goals of, of a given project. And so there are, you know, Bucky Fuller has a quote where he says, I, I never set out designing something um, to try to make it beautiful. But, uh, you know, I still want to start off thinking about function. But if in the end it's not beautiful, I know I've done something wrong. And mm. so it suggests that if, if you focus on that rather than the form, you focus on the function and the performance, then the ultimate result uh, you know, does achieve aesthetics. And so, yeah. That's interesting, yeah, because when, when you look at nature, it definitely is function, you know, function follows form. You know, and it doesn't take, nature doesn't take anything extra. It just takes what it needs, you know, and it, there's, there's really, there's no excess, you know, it's just like you said, the way the tree is grown, it's, it's, it is what it is, you know, the leaves, uh, and the branches and all the way down to the roots. And, and I think you can really see that in your, in your design, you know, it really works with the landscape. It works with, um, you, you know, um, how light, uh, how the sun, you know, interacts with the house, um, and the positioning on the lot and everything and the capture views and whatnot. So, uh, I think that's definitely evident in your, in your designs, uh, or your, your y'all's designs since, you know, this is a team effort after all. You, um, so you're, you're a assistant professor at, at UT and, and can, can you kind of give us a little bit more information on that and, and what it is you do there and what, what, what do you teach? Uh, yeah, I'm actually, it's actually an associate professor. Um, oh, sorry, not to not to pick on that too much. But that's, okay, that's the difference between having tenure or not. And so, so I I, uh, I did get tenure in 2015. Um, so I've been teaching for, at UT for 14 years, and for half that time, so I was an assistant professor before I became okay. an assistant professor in 2015. Awesome. Um, and that um, there are several different components to that role. Um, 
teaching obviously being a big part of it and the teaching breaks down to teaching both design studios as well as lecture courses so the design studios are um, more like workshops a little more hands-on uh, with a smaller group of students where you're effectively teaching the design process um, in a step-by-step -step way in a more again direct format so so you, you give a hypothetical prompt to the students you give them a site and a program and some goals for a project and then they'll come up with ideas and you critique the ideas you critique their drawings along the way and sort of coach them through that and and so I teach uh, mostly graduate students sometimes undergrads mostly graduate students um, uh, for uh, sometimes at the introductory level and sometimes the advanced level and, it, and, and I um, that's, it's really rewarding. It's also very time-consuming. It, uh, mm. uh, it's often five hours a day, three days a week, just for that one class. To, um, and uh, it takes a lot of preparation. Uh, but it's also really rewarding when you see that so when you you see the evolution of uh, you know, students' academic careers. You know, let's a light bulb come on, and like, oh, I, I, can, I get this. Yeah. I understand it. And um, and it's also nice to be able to have control of what the agenda is for that class. So being able to choose the topic of uh, the topic of exploration, what, what type of building will be designed, what, what, where the site will be, and then all the assignments that lead the students toward a design. It's nice having uh, the ability to experiment over the years in different ways. The other classes I teach are more lecture-based classes. One of them is... Uh, a structures course for undergrads. It's a required course for all undergrad architecture students, and it's more about the fundamentals of of uh, building structures um, as that relates to design. And so there are it's it's somewhat calculation based. The students have to go through a fair amount of calculations to determine how a building will perform, or you know, performance of a beam or a truss, a very specific element. But I try to I try to contextualize it in a way that relates to application in the design process rather than just learning the theory of how to how to run through a formula but to understand what it really means when thinking about structures conceptually and, and being realistic about thicknesses of things about um, you know what you can and can't do structurally um, and so that's another one of the classes I teach another class I teach is called light and sustainable design which is a lot about daylight and architecture both in terms of uh, the more scientific aspects of that in terms of thermal qualities and heat exchange, but also a lot to do with the more experiential and artistic components of the quality of light and how that affects everything from um, just the way that we see and the way that color is rendered to uh, you know, much even our circadian rhythms and different patterns uh, that, that affect us in lots of different ways. So. So the, the teaching component is a big part of that role, and then there are all, there. Are, um, I'm also the the director of the sustainable design program, um, and so there are some administrative components to go with that in terms of admissions of students into the sustainable design program, advising their thesis work along the way, and then just other service components that come with that role, you know, serving on committees to help generally just improve the school, or you know, there's, there's some work to do in the trenches as well. And um, and, so, and some scholarly work as well. I've I've um, done a fair amount of writing and co-authored a book with uh, Dason Witsit and um, and then the the practice that we the work that we do at MFA is uh, is considered creative scholarly work uh, and is uh, is also appreciated by the school. Um, 
and, and the students as well to appreciate sort of practicing what you preach and to have uh, and 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 so so that's that's a fun thing as well is that overlap between the two because what I what I do teach in class is influenced by what we're doing in the practice and then vice versa what I do in the what we do in the practice is influenced by what we're researching in school and and uh, exploring. Sounds a lot more than three times a week, five hours a day. <laughs> sounds like it's a labor of love there. Yeah, it sounds like there's passion. And in the sustainability side of things, uh, I'm, I'm struggling, uh, you know, with, you know, we, we were, it seemed like there was a time when in academia we were trying to be proactive about how do we deal with this, you know, thing that we're doing to our planet and, here we are and we're trying to do that on a micro scale and hope that each of us stitches together and it, it does better. And, 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 and now it seems like it's almost like a reactive thing. I was, I don't know, I'm probably repeating a story I can't tell anymore, but NPR had this thing about like in the eighties, there was like eight days where it was over a hundred degrees. And now we're projecting the thirties, 2030s to be like more than 30 days. And that's from the heat Island effect. And that's from global warming, uh, are you, is there any focus in the sustainable side of like, how do we, how do we, I don't know, after something's done, be able to reduce this, this problem that's happening or, or, or maybe even, maybe even proactive. Are you guys, are you guys targeting that? I'm sure you are. It's a great question. I, I would first start by mentioning that even just the term sustainability is, is really relative in terms of how, how it's used and. And that, that is, so it starts with that. It's sort of first saying, okay, what, what are we talking about? And, and realistically, what sort of impact can we have as architects? And, and you know, one, one way of talking about sustainability is that there are three different types. There's, you know, uh, term, when we think globally, three different types. There's financial sustainability, and then social sustainability, thinking about things like equity, and then environmental sustainability. And largely in architecture... In our experience as architects, we've found that we can have a little bit bigger impact in the financial component and the environmental component, but it also depends a lot upon the goals of the client, of what the agenda uh, really is. And so um, when we think about the environmental sustainability component, there we have, you know, there are a lot of different things that we do as architects that can impact environmental sustainability, even if it's on a small scale, as you point out. And that has everything to do from site development, the way that the way the site is developed, the way that water is managed, the way that energy is managed, materials and methods, um, uh, and then indoor in, you know indoor environments, uh, which have, has become a much bigger thing more recently. Typically, we've only taught, thought about it in terms of the environmental component, but now we're thinking about it more in terms of indoor environments, which begins to talk about wellness and health of the occupants. And so that begins to talk more about this kind of social sustainability in terms of just thinking about what would save the planet, but it's also what's good for people. The, uh, the financial component is also a very complex one because it has to do with ultimately ROI. Um, and mostly when we talk about uh, the cost of a building, we're talking about the cost on day one. When we talk about cost per foot, we're talking about the cost on day one. Yep. But many, many times there are decisions that are made that have to do with are we talking are you know are you going to pay now or pay later like in terms of there's always going to be some maintenance in a building but it's never going to be well that whatever you paid on day one now it's just going to be you know it's just going to ride as is there's always going to be some maintenance and uh, and it costs more typically to have you know, to design and build a lower maintenance building one that won't need to be uh, 
uh, constantly, you know, maintained and, and, you know, painted or things, just things need to be replaced all the time. So that, that's one of the complex things. And sometimes, sometimes clients don't, um, even if they understand the value of trying to do something that's, that's really built to last, that might be too expensive relative to either their budget or what they can get from the bank or, you know, just being, you know, how, how one is financing a project. And, and so there are a lot of complex moving parts in general, and um, and it's it's uh, I, I understand uh, how, how sometimes you can reach this point of despair and sort of just throw our hands up in the air and just say, well, I, I guess you know this is a runaway train as it is the way things are going with energy crisis and climate change and those types of things. But I think it's a matter of like finding those windows when you have a chance to make a difference. Like when, when you know, and, and again, some projects, and some clients, that's just, you know, they have d- different interests and, and, and uh, there's only so much we can do about that. But, um, but there are you know, often ways to try to use best practices along the way. But, but a lot of this comes back to, again, one, one of the definitions of sustainability that we talk about a lot is just the idea of something to sustain, to endure to, to last a long time. And there's a lot of merit in that in trying to design and build things well. That in and of itself is has to do with a measure of sustainability and a stewardship of uh, the financing that's going into it. Um, there are, on the flip side, there are some things that are meant to be temporary. Uh, most of the work that we do isn't, but, uh, or isn't meant to be a, you know, a very temporary thing. But there, are other, there is an argument sometimes for things that are designed to be temporary where you almost effectively think about it in terms of disassembly required along the way. It's like, how, how can this pavilion, there are pavilions, for a, a good example of this is that the Serpentine Pavilion in London, every year they build a pavilion uh, by a famous architect. And of course, an important part of the design of that and then the construction of that is also thinking about the disassembly. How's that going to come apart? easily and uh, transform to something else. So, so again, a lot of the, in, in my mind, a lot of sustainability has to do with thinking about what, what are the goals of the project? What are the ta- what's the timeline? What sort of investment is this? How are you thinking about it in a way that acknowledges those timelines and those um, larger goals of the project? But um, it, is, it is a very complex thing. Yeah, yeah. So we sort of have talked about like what sustainability is can you go into maybe you know a little bit into how you apply that in your practice yeah i in terms of applying sustainability in practice yeah i was fortunate to work for max levy uh, an architect in dallas uh, for my first job um, while finishing undergrad and for after undergrad and max is an expert in very low-tech sustainability which i'll elaborate on in a moment and then I later was fortunate to work for Foster and Partners in London, a very large, high-powered firm, a Pritzker Prize-winning firm, that's well known for very high-tech, uh, sustainable strategies. And um, the former, with with Max Levy, the, a lot of uh, that uh, the low-tech sustainability has to do with more passive strategies, thinking about the siting of a building, the orientation of a building. How do you respond to the to the patterns of the sun, to breezes, to to the topography, to trees that exist in the site. How do you design something that just works with nature in a in a passive way, um, and really focusing on that and light and shadows and very simple things, as opposed to high tech, which gets into things 
like photovoltaics and rainwater collection systems, um, very advanced building skins in terms of you know very high tech facades and different elements, and and so what we try to do at MFA is to try to balance those two things and just as a, a default as a prerequisite always always sort of have the the passive components in mind and try to design something that's as responsible as it can be on its given site relative to those conditions and the goals of the client or owner. And then begin to talk about implementing high-tech components when it makes sense in, in terms of, and so whether it is the building envelope itself and how much that is meant to be very calibrated and very performative, or if it is active systems like photovoltaics or rainwater collection or whatever the case is. So um, we, you know, just by default, always try to start with thinking about, um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, daylight, the sun, you know, it, it, try to respond in a very um, fundamental way to those elements. And then depending upon the budgets or other goals, figure out how many active and high-tech components can or should be folded into uh, into the project. The Again, it comes back to meeting the expectations of a given client. Like, what, what are the goals for this? What is, what is the ROI? It's always a value proposition, but trying to balance those things and you know is is what we find being the most important part of of what we do to, to dial that in to make the most sense for for a given project i think there would be a time when like it would be like electronics where there's a financial sustainability that you mentioned like that these you know and often it, it's at scale that you can do these high-tech solutions and the project can just eat the cost of whatever this thing is to be sustainable do you think that well, eventually it'll drop like electronics where these things will be more attainable at a smaller scale and that we can, we can have, I don't know, more better Bruce Lay systems or <laughs> where there, there'll be stock product that we can get and we can implement them uh, along with the, the active sustainable measures. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think, I think with most technology, you're right. Most technology, which, you know, whether it's the computer itself, it starts of extremely exclusive and very clunky. And then becomes something that's very manageable and everyone can can access, and it's a thousand times better than it was, and it's 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 alpha and beta version. I, th I think that there that that is a, is a natural evolution to expect for a lot of the high tech tech the high tech components, all of that technology. But I also don't think that alone gets us there. Like, even just sure. that alone, I think it, I think that the 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 more passive components have to be considered as well. And so, you know, one in 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 terms of thinking about our practice of, of how we work, um, we'll, we'll often reference, and we learned a lot from you know regional architecture, um, because regional architecture in every region, really, in, including ours um, in the, the hill country re region, of course, had to be sustainable before there was technology, before we had climate control. But you had to yeah. think of ways to deal passively with yeah. airflow and man managing the sun, managing the heat. You had to do, and the same thing in terms of material. Of course, materials were locally sourced. There right. was no way to order something internationally. Learn something from Chaco Canyon. Why did right. they build the kivas in the ground? Because they right. were getting underneath to be able to get away from the heat. Or right. what was the orientation of the kivas to be able to block that south sun? Right. Right. So, so there are lessons to learn from that without mimicking exactly. It's like, how can you learn from that and then do something that could be... Yeah, you know, it can evolve from that and then incorporate that technology uh, where it makes sense. But 
But I think, I think it's tempting to get caught up in the gadgetry of the technology for, for all of us. And all of us have different gadgets on us all the time. And, and we're all guilty of that, probably. But I, I think that <laughs> the same thing can happen in architecture, where it's going to be about these features and these different components. But in, 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 again, those, there's nothing wrong with having those, but those shouldn't be what define the work. That should be, yeah. um, in some way, sort of an accessory to the, 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 the bones of the design. Uh, I, I think so. So I think it's a good it's a good question. And I do think I do think it's trending toward those becoming those types of technologies, including PV panels, becoming more accessible, higher performing, and everything else. But I also think that you know that's a good example actually. Uh, PV panels. If the, if a roof isn't designed in a way that allows for the, the orientation to be able to capture the sun, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter how much technology you can bring into it if it's not designed in a way that where it can be integrated into the the initial design. Yeah, there's got to be some percentage of the value of the sustainability on, on siting alone and uh, uh, the capturing of the heat or not, depending on where you're at. Yeah, right. Well, what um, what problems are you are you currently facing? I mean, what uh, what do you see? Maybe some potential issues in the the design realm, I guess, so, so to speak. I mean, just kind of looking into the future. I mean, do you, what what do you see as potential issues yeah i I think austin's a very rapidly growing city which is overall it's a great thing but there are growing pains that come with that i'd say in a lot of ways where you know it's the city's in a bit of an identity crisis of figuring out you know what once used to be you know sort of a college town a seat of government but um but not not a very uh, active town, uh, at least in terms of industry. Now it is evolving a lot, both in terms of population and industry moving into the city, and and so uh, from in all sorts of dimensions, uh, we're we're dealing with the growing pains. Whether it's the infrastructure and our highway system and traffic or parking and evolving all these types of ways, but it's certainly affecting um, architecture uh, and the the building stock. Um, and one of the tensions and problems that we have is inherently if we if the if the city keeps growing the way it does, and as I, as I understand, it's doubled in population every twenty years since eighteen ninety, and one hundred and sixty five people have moved to Austin every day since the year two thousand, um, and it hasn't slowed down. If that in, if that continues to be the case, where the city keeps growing in terms of population and therefore demand of building stock. That that is in direct conflict with our zoning and building codes uh, for most of the city, which push us toward low density. Uh, and and so it's it's an interesting problem where um, we have the the local interests of neighborhoods, which I fully understand. We have neighborhood associations and homeowners associations that want to maintain a certain traditional neighborhood feel, and that's at odds with the number of people that are moving to town and need a place to stay. Um, and, and so it's, it's just, it, it's a, it, it really is a challenge and it's one that's really upstream from where we as architects operate. Uh, meaning that it's, it's decided at the, you know, urban design, urban you know, planning, uh, political policy mm-hmm. uh, side is where it's decided. And in a lot of ways, by the time that we are, by the time it gets downstream to us, we're given a, a, a lot that has a lot of 
parameters on it, often many of them form-based, uh, such as the McMansion Ordinance subchapter F, where we're in some ways sort of coloring between the lines a little bit, and we're uh, you know, sort of you can only build out X amount, have X amount of impervious cover, and X amount of density on on a given lot. And so that's just that's just a, a bigger problem that we have, which is exacerbated by the financial components of that. Is the because of the demand, and the the markets here have uh, have really been crazy, and and, and uh, the, the costs of real estate have, have really been um, have been crazy. Which again is overall a good thing for the city, as opposed to the opposite. But it does have its own problems that uh, are are difficult for any one architect to uh, contend with. And so it's it, what comes with that often is trying to manage expectations in terms of what, uh, how far a budget can go, what you can actually do on a given lot. Um, I'll just say that that feasibility comes into play a whole bunch. Like just kind of what's, what's actually feasible to do on a given property um, and, it, and what sort of investment is that um, construction costs are increasing rapidly. And so that's one of those things of, of trying to manage expectations, which is very hard to do. And none of us have a crystal ball to even know mm. what will happen with everything from construction costs to the policy. Like there's talk of, you know, some of the, some codes could change to allow for more flexibility to to, to build and develop, um, but we just don't know. And so so it's it's a it's a challenge that. Um, is in many ways quite unique to Austin because of the boom that we we currently have, and so so it's 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 fun to operate in this. It's fun to work in the city, fun to be a part of it, but it's also hard to to wrap your head around how much is changing and how fast, and especially for someone like myself from who's originally from Austin, like you know, and uh, native native Austinites like to uh, be nostalgic and talk about old Austin and mm -hmm. all these different things at this and at the same time um, it's hypocritical for me to do so because uh, because I, I'm part of the of Austin changing I'm part of the, the newer Austin that we know I'm participating in that every day but um, it's an inevitability if it's a yeah. cool place to live you're going to have people that want to move here we're going to decide on what how we're going to how we're all going to work together and so I, I think controlling the narrative by saying hey all right, it's going to happen and, and then go for, I don't know what code next was so promising to, to give us to, to, uh, have a way to move forward, a pathway. Um, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So code next was trying to allow for some variety in the zoning, but still managing it a bit. But it is this question of a lot of people are moving to Austin for the culture, and we don't want to remove the culture in order to make space for them. Like we want to remove a lot of you know older establishments that have been replaced in order to allow for condos and different things to allow people to move in. So that helps to solve the density problem, but then has other other challenges in terms of cultural value. So it's it's, it's a it's a really challenging dilemma, but again, a better problem to have. Than right. a city where, in a city where everyone's moving out, that's falling apart, and so it's it, it, it but it's but it's still a challenge and one that I expect us to be dealing with for a long time. I don't I don't see it um, in the very near future. This problem these problems going away. Yeah. I think there's something we'll just contend with. Can we go into what Code Next is? Maybe for people don't like myself who maybe don't understand exactly what you're talking about when you say Code Next, and that's maybe a question for both of you. So. 
So City of Austin has a <clears throat> land development code. I'm uncertain when it was made. It was uh, it's old. It's an older code, and so we tried to become. Uh, Matt, help me out here. It's uh, be be more progressive and rewrite it to be able to allow for density, uh, be a forward thinking thing instead of looking at the land development code as the Bible that we could have exceptions for uh, transit corridors and. Uh, uh, having areas where there's there uh, we have less restriction to be able to accommodate growth and can you explain what you mean by density? density. I'm, I'm probably gonna ask a lot of dumb questions, That's so fair. just just sure be, beware. So at some point we because <laughs> it uh, seems pretty dense when you when you go into Austin, it already seems pretty dense. So I don't know, maybe maybe explain kind of what you mean by that. Yeah, I don't I don't know. Uh, so. I don't, know how to get in, I don't want to get into Florida area ratios and all that, but like uh, uh, adding more people instead of like a Houston growth. So you're talking about building up just, versus building out? Right. So Houston is a good case study for this, okay. right? It's uh, you kept on uh, realtors say you, you, you drive to your pay grade, right? So it's just this idea of that you just, there's this radiating growth. that's just a swath of things. And you have this thing where I get on, on the highway and, uh, the highway just grows with the traffic, which creates another set of things called induced demand. Where by the time the road's done, then it's it's uh, it's already got the capacity of the traffic on it. Right, and so it's, it's just, just this swath of like it's just a pancake. Everything <laughs> grows, but what we need to do is we need to get more people away. We need to stop taking up more land for housing. We need to have more people in our city centers uh, to be able to densify them and, and grow uh, sustainably. And so I um, don't. Yeah, so you know, it is it is both de- talking about density in terms of the population, but then also just the sheer mass of buildings. And so the the traditional model in much of the U.S. is the single family house with a yard on primarily the front and back, but really all four sides. Again, just having a detached uh, home. And so even just the idea of having uh, you know, accessory dwelling unit is a it's a fairly progressive thing to have a second structure that could be a, that kind of a separate address is an example of trying to introduce a little more density in the posit, both in terms of the built mass, but also the chance for more people to be able to occupy it the lot. And so what Code Next was trying to get into is finding many other ways to try to find that. So rather than only single family homes and huge apartment complexes, trying to allow for a lot of things in the middle of duplexes, quadplexes. You know, low-rise development, trying to create the missing middle, trying to create a lot of different options and giving more flexibility in the zoning, so that it wouldn't be just the extreme of the towers and the little houses, but that you could have these sort of undulating uh, transitions. That I forget the exact term, compatibility, talking about sort of these sort of sloping of of, of different, yeah, you know, again, just different varieties of. Um, density of structures that then would allow for uh, a lot more people to live in closer proximity to then make walkable neighborhoods where one could then walk to lots of different amenities, potentially walk to work and not make not make the city as car based. And so so Code Next, I mean it's it's it was I believe the draft was sixteen hundred pages. It's it's extremely in depth, but a lot of it to do is just trying to provide more uh, opportunities for let's just say architectural diversity, which could then allow for lots of other types of diversity and for the city to uh, to evolve in lots of different ways. And, you know, it ran into a lot of resistance along the way. And um, part of that's just as progressive of a city as Austin is, 
that sort of change, uh, you know, begins to challenge what some, you know, some of us are used to in terms of neighborhoods mm-hmm. and some of the different, uh, you know, entrenched things that go with that. And so, so it, it was, it was something that I think its heart was in the right place and it was trying to really evolve this, but to do something that could be comprehensively passed and accepted by the whole city is extremely difficult. Yeah. As Mark's saying, it, you know, it was having to change something that's been in place for a very long time. To then have a sweeping change of the entire thing overnight, it's a bit of a big pill to swallow yeah. for the city. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with Matt. We, we have to have this transitional uh, thing. We, we, have to, we have to be more critical and ask more out of our cities. We have, to, we have to learn to love what it means to be in a cool place and have, you know, have density and ask, ask more out of our city. And so... Um, I don't know. Hopefully, with time, I don't know. I don't know what's what's the on the next agenda with council to be able to. If we got another code next, but uh, yeah, I think that'll that'll help us as the architects and designers to be able to make it not a sprawling city. Uh, and, and I think that in some ways it'll help uh, preserve what Austin wants. It's not it's not that it steals away from it. That it's a uh, it's a way moving forward rather than uh, having no plan at all. I think that often. It's tempting to put things into to polarize things, and to think about it as choosing one or the other, uh, and one of those being city or nature. And people sort of imagining you're choosing just a concrete jungle or complete nature. And obviously, it doesn't have to be either extreme. And it, you can you can have green components in a very big density. Even you know, of course, Manhattan has quite a lot of greenery and quite a lot of density and a lot of large population. In, in, in even the most extreme dense example that we have still has a fair amount of greenery and and so I think that it's tempting to fall into that trap to think oh this increasing density means that we're going to lose uh, for example with the green character that Austin has and and of course it's it's correct to think about preservation for example uh, uh, with Barton Springs you know there was the whole save our springs initiative when there was development proposed that was going to threaten the watershed of of the aquifer and of Barton Springs. And that, that's an example where even those that would completely support increasing density, that, that's just not the place to do it. And so there, there's a way of, again, not to model it after New York at all, but there are ways to reserve certain zones and, and pockets while still increasing density in other ways. And, uh, and there are times when uh, there are views of Austin there's one from uh, right where uh, Redbud Trail intersects with Westlake, and you look back to the city, and it looks like if you're just looking at a park. It's completely, mm. it's just all looks like all trees right before you see the Capitol and, and downtown. And it's hard to believe that's actually a full city. It's, those are full neighborhoods there. So it's wonderful that we have that many trees. Um, at the same time, at what cost of, uh, of the of the sprawl okay is is there a balance is there a way that we can find to develop you know in those areas and in those zones to have both to have both city and nature and all those things to to you know to interlock uh, a bit more the question of infrastructure is a whole other yeah one to do with our road system um and you know dependence on cars which is, is largely a cultural thing um and so there there are other things that can go with this. That there are other things besides buildings that have a direct impact on the experience in the city and the way that we develop or grow a city or don't. Um, and so it's a, it's a really complex issue. 
that this this notion of thinking about how to grow, what's what's the right way to grow. But I really do believe that there's a way to try to find a middle ground between most of these things. It's not as simple as the binary of, as I said, of, of, of city and nature. There's a way to, to try to achieve both. Um, but I think that the idea of either extreme, um, especially the idea of people sort of imagine a concrete jungle when they think of development and density sometimes, um, but it doesn't have to be. There can be plenty of ways to have your cake and eat it too, so to speak. Let's let's make from 15th to Cesar Chavez, 35 to Mopac, no cars. No cars. Park on the outside, little trolley <laughs> system in the middle of the road. Are they trying to do that? It seems like that's what they're... I want, I want that to happen. Okay. I don't spend enough time down there, so it doesn't bug me at all. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like it's this delicate balance. I mean, you're talking about these neighborhoods that have a lot of... Um, it looks like you're looking at a park, but it's actually this neighborhood, and it seems like... To get that, that comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. So I guess the, it kind of begs the question where we have these low-income neighborhoods of these new developments of low-income housing. Um, I guess we're not seeing that a whole lot of, um, you know, where you have this like separation, you know, between the houses and, and you get a lot of greenery in there. It, it seems like, you know, and that I think that's just kind of the nature of the beast where, you know, you got to have affordable housing you know not everybody can can live in in the big mansions and and afford the the property um so it seems like it's this really delicate you know this balance between cost and you know getting these um dense areas but also kind of um what am i trying to say kind of uh, work with the the land so to speak so you're talking about affordability. I'm yeah. buying a house right now, and I qualified. Shoot, yeah, for, talk about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and uh, I qualified for uh, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac because of my salary. And I learned that the average income in Austin now, the median income, I guess is isn't the same, is one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So over the past for a household for a household. For, so over the past, I don't know, decade with all these new jobs, it's it's increased that number. And I know that, like, you know, there's people that have their fourth and fifth generation Austinites that, uh, you know, had their family pass down their the house and, like, taxes on that. Just, like, it's 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 mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's chasing away. Taxes. Oh, my gosh. I just um, had to go through all that crap. I, I don't know. I was just shocked to know that the average household income is $120,000 like that's an island in the state and yeah. uh, far cry from what it once was. And I don't know. Yeah. That's, it's not, it's not helping, uh, uh, preserve these, you know, the artists and the, the people who've lived here for a really long time. Yeah. Speaking of art, I want to go back now to young Matt Ficus. <laughs> you said that you were, you were into art early on, um, into drawing sketches. Um, if you can kind of talk about, like, in your formative years, what um, what do you think influenced you to, to get into architecture? Yeah, um, going way back, um, I when I was very young, at a toddler to kind of early, let's say, grade school years, um, I had a speech impediment where I just had a bad stutter. And I think that that's what... So I had a hard time expressing myself verbally, 
And so I think that that's what began me being able to express myself visually. Like I, I could draw things, and that sort of became my outlet. Oh. I think I, I've never <laughs> that's never been really diagnosed, but as as I you know, as I reflect on I've reflected on that over the years, and I. So I remember you know, drawing and sketching and really trying to you know capture the world around me. So it was often sometimes documenting the world around me, other times just sketching, just imaginative things. And and it was that combined with the fact that for some reason when I was a child I didn't take naps. Um, yeah. So typically you know all little small children take naps, and I, re- I remember in probably preschool or kindergarten there was a time when they would say it's nap time, kids, and everyone would roll out this sort of <laughs> mat and sleep on the mat. And I, I remember I got my mom to write a note for me to bring it in to say he doesn't take naps. Is it possible he can, is it possible he can do something else? He just wow. doesn't take naps. And so they put me, this was, I guess I was in kindergarten, they put me with fifth graders or something for that nap hour. They put me in the back of the room and just let me uh, just draw on my sketchbook. And I remember thinking, those suckers gave in the nap time. And I, got, I got out of it. I don't have to do the nap. And, and then, of course, by the time I was in college, I would have done anything to show up for an 8 o'clock class and for the professor to say, like, hey, why don't you guys all go home and take a nap? I wouldn't have done anything for that. Boswell would never allow that. <laughs> never, never would have happened. But, but I, think, I, so I think that those... Uh, those things uh, interestingly began to allow me to kind of develop uh, an interest and skills and in uh, kind of drawing and creating things and and then in high school I had a couple of uh, art teachers and, and made, made a big impression on me in terms of teaching me a lot of different skills and, and one of them uh, he uh, Dr. Oliver was his name uh, he, he would often say he would say something about, uh, you know, Mr. Aspiring Architect, or he would always say, make some, some sort of reference to architecture quite a lot. And, um, and, and during my freshman year of high school, I remember that. And, um, and that planted a seed for me, I think, because it wasn't until I was graduating from high school that I really decided what I might try for as a major. And it was really just because I was pressured into it, as if you had to commit to something. Um, and, and it just sort of seemed like, well, I guess I'll, I'll try architecture. I enjoy, I enjoy drawing. It seems that drawing is a part of architecture. And I also, I also really like to draw in buildings, like sketching buildings, drawing buildings in a very detailed way. And so, um, so that was a really big influence. And, and I, 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 I actually am in debt in a lot of ways to Dr. Oliver because he, um, he was also, uh, he challenged me a lot in, in a way that I thought was, um, that frustrated me at the time because I felt as though he held me to a higher standard than all the other students. Held you to your potential, probably. I guess so because I, you know initially, like he, uh, I remember doing some of the early artwork in that class, and then at some point he pulled me aside and he said, "What's going on? Why, why are you, uh, why are you not performing as well as you can?" And I said, "What do you mean? I'm doing the same thing everyone else is doing." And he said, mm. "Exactly." Mm-hmm. Exactly. He said, you shouldn't be doing the same thing I was doing. So he put me in the corner of a, like in a, a cubicle, hidden in the corner of a room where I couldn't talk to any other students for the rest of the year. And, and I hated it because I, I, you know, I, I just wow. like all the other freshmen, I, I wanted to socialize and I wanted to, especially in, in that case, I was a, a new student, um, had just moved to you know, that town in high school, um, wanted to try to acclimate. And instead I was sort of put on an island. Um, and he gave me assignments that were much more difficult than all the other students. 
And, uh, and, and I, again, I resented that at the time because I just, I just wanted to be just one of the normal students. I wanted to be accepted with everyone else. I wanted to be, I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to be challenged in that way. Um, but, but that gave me a lot of fundamentals, um, in terms of working with, uh, different media, you know, whether it was pen and ink or whether it was with prismacolors and watercolor, I learned to use lots of different things in lots of different ways and ways to draw space and, well, he gave me a lot of freedom to draw whatever I wanted quite often, but it often would be buildings and spatial things. And so that, that was certainly formative and, and set in motion a lot of things. I, I later realized, you know, when getting into architecture school, that drawing is, is an important part of the process, but it's really a tool along the way. It's just so much more about creative thinking and thinking about systems um, thinking, thinking, like coordinating and collaborating a lot of different things, and not not the drawing is a tool you use to represent your ideas, but you have to have an idea as well. So it's actually I had to then one, once I got into architecture school, realized I had to grow in a whole bunch of other ways that I, I hadn't expected to. But that interest in art from a really young age, I think, was a pretty common thread that mm-hmm. enabled me to be able to. Yeah, it was a, it was a it was a sort of a, a launching pad to a lot of other things. I often feel like lucky. Like we ask eighteen year olds, "Hey, go find out what you want to do for the rest of your life," yeah. and it's darts at a dartboard, and it's right. it's kind of unfair. And I feel so lucky that I I, I chose architecture because, like, still I'm I'm, I'm giddy about it. I'm excited <laughs> about it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting you hearing you talk about what you would draw and it's something that I get, I don't know, you're familiar with, right? You're, we all walk into spaces, we all know buildings and, um, I don't know, to have that fascination hit and still be curious is, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I feel fortunate for yeah. finding it. So I've been, uh, you remind me a lot about this. I've been reading the, this book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've heard of it or not. Um, yeah, yeah. um but, so he, he, in the book he goes into, and I, and I think you fit this almost perfectly, like you and your, uh, your journey and then, and, and your architecture firm now, y'all are really outliers in the, um, in the architecture world. Uh, and he goes into a lot of, he looks at a lot of like big tech guys and maybe these, these oil tycoons and, and a lot of like highly successful billionaires and, um, people who have um, basically found success and, you know, gone and, and kind of looked at, you know, what it is in there um, about them personally and maybe what about their environment that, that led them down the, the path that they're on. And so it's interesting to hear your story because it very much fits what he's talking about, like what I'm reading right now. Um, he, he was talking... I'm probably going to butcher it, but um, he was he was kind of talking about Bill Gates' background and Steve Jobs and um, kind of coming up in the um, uh, in in the '70s, you know, when the the computer, the first supercomputers were first coming out, and um, and he goes into this that idea about uh, what is it, ten thousand hours? How it takes ten thousand hours to master any one skill, and a lot of these guys. The reason why they're so successful is because they had so much time early on in their lives when they were very young on these computers that were 
they were just coming out and they were brand new and they just so happened to be going to this private school that, you know, this uh, computer club bought the first computer and they, they got to tinker with it and play with it. And then they moved on to the high school and college. And, you know, when the computers started to really take off and, and so they were able to kind of hone and master their skills to the point where they were in college. And then they, um, you know, after graduating college, rather, they, go off into these industries and now they were they were above everybody else because they they were in you know introduced to the to the computer very early on and so mm-hmm. when you talk about mm-hmm. your early stages about how you were drawing at a very young age and how you mm-hmm. feel like that was the only way you could communicate that that kind of seems like that began your journey of of mastering a certain skill right of expressing yourself through drawing and and through art so um, I'm, I'm happy to hear you talk about that because that, that really fits in. Uh, I think you fit that definition of, a, of an outlier, um, you know, in, in architecture, really. I appreciate that. I, and I, I think that as part of an overall trajectory of developing any skill, skill or ability in um, any discipline, but certainly what I found in, in architecture is that very direct skill and direct relationship to this cr- the craft is important uh, to I think that idea of developing the craft or a certain skill is important to um, to set up the trajectory but at some point it, it, it uh, you have to find a way to teach others mm-hmm. like, um, or otherwise you are really limiting the ultimate impact you can have and and I realized that pretty early on when uh, uh, first starting to practice, I'd taken on three projects. So I was, so I was teaching full-time and trying to uh, design three different houses and do all the drawings, all the production for all of them, and and realized pretty quickly I was hitting my capacity. And I had been, up until that point, completely... I had a lot of pride in my drawings and what I wanted to do. Um, and and, I, and I had a, I'd, up until that point, I had a problem delegating and realized I've got to learn ways to share this with others and and to trust other people and to begin to establish a framework uh in a team that can it can you know really run with this or else i'm i'm really limiting my capacity can't scale you can't even take on even one very large complex project much less than doing multiple projects right and so there was the the first kind of trying to learn all these skills myself um and then i I, and then I, i quickly realized that I need to be able to share it with others, but then also realizing that other people were just had other different skills that they were better at certain things than I was. And it's like that complements really well mm-hmm. the way that I think and what my strengths are. And so that's, so that was actually a really rewarding part of the process was learning. Okay. I, uh, no matter how far I try to go in terms of mastering something, um, uh, you know, at some point you, you feel like that begins to level out and because, well, you know, I don't know how much further I can push this. But uh, what I really began to appreciate was the idea of, like, of collaborating with others and realizing, ah, this is, this is actually really great. And, and, and both in terms of collaborating with others on, within our own design team, but then with uh, other experts that are out there, whether it is the builders, general contractors, consultants, and, and even our clients and owners have a, lot, have a lot of knowledge and different things, a lot of accomplishments. Then just realizing, okay, let's... Um, allow all the skill set that I've learned to become something that our team begins to engender, begins to embody, 
and then something that we can fold in all these other things to, and then it just kind of just catapults the whole new dimension yeah. that you couldn't, uh, like, I couldn't have ever foreseen, and something better than I could have come up with on my own, which is really a really fun aspect of that trajectory. So, like letting letting those who you teach turn around and then teach you in exactly. a way, yeah. Exactly. I, well, I was, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, yeah, I was I was reading an article. I think it was modern architecture i'm not sure um i don't remember the the publication but they were talking to you about your about your firm and and you said something here of note that i that i it really stuck with me um because they i think the question was you basically you you hire a lot of ut grads you know a lot of students and Basically, like I said, you're you're letting the the student turn around and then kind of contribute and and teach as much as they know how. And let's see, you said what what uh, what could a student teach? But if students bring their ideas, the ideas of someone not yet proven, their humility and their critical thinking skills, they also bring a different perspective. Um, so, kind of tying into what you said, it, it just. They, they can put their idea out there, whether it's good or bad. It's it's an opportunity to learn uh, for everybody. You know, you might mm-hmm. take parts of that idea and be like, ah, oh, this is really good, but the rest of it's kind of garbage, and you know, here's why. And and so I think it, um, yeah, it's just bringing a different perspective to the team kind of helps build everybody up and, and um, make everybody better. Yeah, it's it's that's that's a real fun part of uh, our brainstorming sessions, which in architecture we call design charrettes where um, at different stages of project, we all come to the table and, uh, you know, kind of sort of casually throw around different ideas of what, what, what direction the design could go. And everyone has to enter into that uh, without much ego, of just be willing to be part of the conversation. Yeah. But, but uh, you can't enter in with this ego of like, I'm going to have the best idea, you know, my idea needs to win, but rather... Hopefully we've come up with the best idea together and let's all support that. And it's going to make us all better. Uh, let's, let's figure out what, what's the best idea we can come up with and, and all rally behind that. And it's usually not even as simple as one person's idea. You start riffing off of each other yeah, yeah. and it takes on a life of its own. And, and that does require uh, principal architects so, you know, for Sarah Johnson and myself. That requires us to go in knowing that uh, being open-minded to where it can go. Even if we have some ideas of our own. We're not going to try to cram those down the throat of the project. Instead, mm-hmm. say, okay, we have some ideas we put on the table, but so, you know, someone might challenge these and bring up the issues that we hadn't thought of, the problems with those, or different things. And, and that's, that's really fun. That, that process is fun because yeah. it, I think everyone feels like you're participating. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we know that the idea is uh, certainly not always going to be mine. Or so, actually, it's usually not my idea that when it's not, at least it's not just a pure version of my idea that ends up winning. I'm part of the conversation just like everyone else is. And um, that's, that's a little bit different than the traditional model of architecture that Frank Lloyd Wright would have had, for example, where mm-hmm. it was typically Frank Lloyd Wright and a bunch of interns yeah. that talked down. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and, and maybe, and, and he clearly had an incredible, it seemed an endless bandwidth to, of design ideas in, in a way that most people don't in the first place. But it was just a very different model. It was a very top down, very authoritarian, um, which worked for him, certainly. And, and, and that was a more of a traditional model in the past. And, and I, I think that um, pretty early on, as I mentioned, I realized that I, 
it, I was better when working in a collaborative, working in a team, um, and you know, helping to lead that team, run that team, but uh, but to allow others to participate. And it, it tends to, like I said, not only empower them and allow them to grow in different ways and encourage them, um, but it just makes the work better and makes our work more. I, I think our work more interesting. I think that there's a reason why no two of our projects look identical. Mm-hmm. Which we're proud of. We don't want to be known of as creating the same thing and just stamping it out all around the city or all around the country, um, but instead designing something that's really custom and unique to what makes sense for that given site and that client. Yeah, it's it's not a typology either, right? There's I don't know what you've done. Like the bat houses, you've done that. You you took a, you made a a, a, a a runway show with uh, paper hangers. You, <laughs> you you go out to a boat dock and make the damnedest, most beautiful boat dock on yeah. Lake Austin. Like you just you. You don't. You're curious. I see the curiosity in your work, and then very experimental ambition to like, yeah, to hammer out the idea. It's uh, it's rigorous, but it's uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. That's that's something that has been very intentional from the beginning to not get pinned down to be a, a one trick pony, to be yeah. seen as the firm that does, you know, one very specific type of project or does you know remodels in this parts of town or creates you know restaurants in this part of town or whatever it's like yes and it could be any of those things those we've we've always tried to avoid being put into a box of oh you are this one this is what you're capable of we can put you over there but instead say you know we're really about being designers and ultimately we think of design as creative problem solving it's like there's a problem to be solved and can we solve it creatively so can we solve it in a way that that, that uh, works functionally and is aesthetically rich as well and that can come in the form of a, a boat dock or a fashion show backdrop or a freestanding house or a, a medical facility mm-hmm. you know that uh, Westlake Dermatology Mobile Falls building is a doctor's office Beautiful. to yeah. win an AAA national award but trying to remove the stigma of going to the doctor instead so instead of in, in, in many ways instead of trying to trying to think about well, what's a typical doctor office like and what can we do instead saying what can it be instead and can we think about it uh, can we think about the function of what it needs to do but how can we make it something that really transcends or elevates above your typical expectation of uh, a doctor office so all of those typologies have a lot of potential and and we like to um, be a little bit of chameleons in that sense and so that because ultimately what our clients are paying for is a process not a product they're, they're not buying that car off the lot that's a ready-made thing they're paying for a process for us to creatively problem solve in this instance for them and with them and that's a lot of fun it, it, it it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a it's a more lucrative business model to sell products they get off the shelf with the assembly line going mm-hmm. and just like stamp out a bunch of mass production and sell all There's those things that's that. certainly more lucrative yeah but but that's that's not what ultimately we're really doing we're creating we're, you know they're hiring us for, for that process along the way which has an unexpected and unknown outcome which is extremely exciting and terrifying every time (laughs) for sure well appreciate you coming out this way and yeah coming on the yeah we we all we really appreciate your time we know you're extremely busy guy so we appreciate you taking some time out of your day to come sit down with us uh hopefully we can get you back on some point in the future uh but matt it's been a pleasure talking to you 
Yeah, great to meet you, Lonnie. Great to meet you, Mark. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. For more information on upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram. Feel free to leave us your thoughts to help us shape future podcasts.